The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week we're taking a look at two very different types of white-collar crime, financial fraud and painting forgery, and how we use investigation and science to detect them. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Jennifer Fidian Green is a partner at Grant Thornton and leads their National Forensic and Dispute Resolution Advisory Practice. She gives regular presentations and leads discussion groups to raise awareness and strengthen practices to prevent and detect fraud, including identity theft, money laundering, corruption, kickbacks, employee dishonesty, e-discovery, and IT security issues. As an investigative forensic accountant and a certified money laundering specialist, she has worked both criminal and civil cases testified as an expert witness, and led large and complex fraud investigations. Jennifer, welcome to Science for the People. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Michelle. So can you first maybe give us a definition for forensic accounting for people who have no idea what that is? Okay, so, and I'm asked this question a lot. So what is forensic accounting? Forensic accounting, it's really investigating the numbers, right? And it's really, it's trying to, um, I work and, and my team works, we work uh, to understand the story behind the numbers, the people behind the numbers, and what really happened. And uh, we understand, we know that the numbers, the, the journal entries, the financial statements, you know, the numbers that are in front of us, um, if they're uh, manipulated or somebody wants to tell a different story, we've got to dig underneath uh, to understand what really happened. So why would someone get an investigative accountant instead of just uh, other investigative professionals, like a police officer, a detective, or maybe a PI? What, what is it that you have in your skill set that uh, those individuals probably don't have? So often, um, uh, myself and, and my team, we work with um, uh, some of those kinds of professionals, so law enforcement agencies, police officers, investigators. In fact, one of the people on my team is not an accountant. He's, he's, he's an investigator, and so he, uh, he brings his skills and we bring our skills. So as uh, investigative forensic accountants, we really understand accounting. We understand um, the numbers. We understand how they're recorded, how they're supposed to be recorded, what the rules for accountants are. And accounting uh, is so that so that's the the, the professional expertise, the financial accounting, uh, the the business world, uh, how, how things are recorded, how they're supported, what kind of documentary evidence, what should be there, so then we can take a look and see what uh, how that compares to what is there. So we're really working with many of those types of professionals. So for you know on a on a case where we're investigating allegations of fraud or uh, theft, say, within a company, we might have to look at uh, all of the different records, but we might also have to do um, a number of interviews of people. So the investigator might have quite strong um, uh, you know, interview skills and lots of experience. And so then the, the, the forensic accountant could partner with that person. Now, as a forensic accountant, you also have to understand uh, that you've got to talk to people sometimes to find out the, the real story, the story behind the numbers. So we often, um, uh, as part of the training, you have to understand interviewing, interviewing techniques, and you've got to be able to do that as well. So I do want to get into a little bit more detail about what some of these fraud cases look like. Can you uh, maybe tell us a little bit about what a Ponzi scheme is and uh, maybe give us an example of one that you've worked on or know about or how a forensic accountant might get involved with a Ponzi scheme or get involved with investigating a Ponzi scheme? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, hopefully we're not <laughs> we're not involved, right? Uh, right. So, but we do we do often talk about that. You know, really organized, sophisticated criminals will like to have accountants and lawyers next to them to um, to help legit help legitimize what it is that they're doing and 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 really look credible out to the party. But um, certainly, these types of things, um, forensic accountants want to be on the investigating side of it. So, a Ponzi scheme is is often some of the different language used to describe it is a um, a pyramid scheme, and we're seeing more and more of these. These have been around for a long, long time, and the very first one was, I think, uh, um, I, you know, I don't have the the story here right in front of me, but the individual who perpetrated perpetrated it, his name was Ponzi. That's why we call it Ponzi. But if you think of a pyramid scheme, if you think um, uh, an individual, and often it's somebody who is highly, um, what's the word? You know, they're very um, um, they present themselves as very credible. They're very, um, um, uh, there's someone who is very engaging and personable and they're reaching out to individuals and they're saying, look, I have this investment opportunity and if you put in $100 today, you know, I'm going to be able to, by the end of the year, you're going to be able to get out 150 and so you do that, and, and these can be quite sophisticated. There can be lots of terms and conditions and, and you know, details about, you know, what the, uh, the payment amount that you have to make, the, uh, the, the interest that will be paid back to you, how you get your money out, lots of glossy brochures, lots of stories. But in essence, your money goes in $100, and the individual who's paid that money in believes that they're going to get quite a high rate of return when they get their money out. Now, the person who's taken that $100, they have, they've now made a commitment to give 150 so they need to go find you know a couple more people to put in $100 in order to make that payment and for the for the beginning of these schemes the individuals who get er, get in early they often get their money out with that high rate of return and the the scheme will only work if the person who's perpetrated keeps going to find more and more people to add on to the bottom of the pyramid and the pyramid the, the triangle always gets bigger the pyramid gets bigger at the bottom because there's more money and then the people at the top can get their money out. These schemes can go on for a long time, but as soon as the, 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 the intake of the new money stops, any type of payments to the people who've already put in money have to stop as well because, there, because there's no new money. There's not actually any underlying investment that is, that is generating this rate of profitability to, to, to make this kind of uh, payments to the people. So, uh, you know, we all heard in the news and the press the Bernie Madoff um, Ponzi scheme. I mean, that was one of the biggest ones that uh, impacted many Canadians, but it was uh, led out of Madoff, uh, out of the um, the U.S. The one that um, has been uh, up here in Canada, we have had our share of some of the big ones, and th there's just so many of these. Rochelle, it's un, it's it's it is really um, I don't know what the word is. It's troubling to me that so many of us in our society are. Um, I don't know if the word is, I don't think that we're gullible and naive. Some of us are, but we, we do want to believe that someone who comes to us and presents an investment opportunity, we want to believe that it's real. We want to believe, yes, we can make 25%, you know, interest profitability. Those kind of investments just don't exist anymore, you know, re real ones. But we have had a number of, um, uh, cases here in, um, uh, Canada and we, um, in the work that I do, we see more and more. We see 
many of these, and we provide uh, forensic accounting services to some of the different police agencies, and we do the forensic accounting on these cases, smaller ones that are not, you know, big enough to get a name attached to them and get into the, the newspaper headlines. And what we see is we see checks and money payments, usually they're checks that we see that are paid, you know, from People, people like you and I, you know, neighbors who live on streets that we know of in the cities that we live in who are paying money to an individual who presents themselves as, um, um, uh, so, you know, someone who will take this money and invest it on behalf of the, the people who are putting the money forward and return a high rate of return. And what we do as forensic accountants is we're, we trace the money from the alleged victims, the people who have provided the money. We trace it into bank accounts. We try to understand what actually happened to the money and uh, we, we trace if it was you know did the person just take the money and use it to live their own lifestyle did they did they uh, send it to a bank account in another part of the world like what are they actually doing with the money did they in any way use the money to do what they told these people they were going to do we have to have a really good look at that because we can't um, um, if the person actually does what they said they were going to do then then a crime hasn't been committed right we're not protected for bad investments um, and then, and, and then, as I said, we look to see if they've hidden the money away. And so we're actually tracing it into the bank accounts, and we, we put together um, reports, you know, they're called expert forensic accounting reports, and we say this is where the money came from, this is where we trace the money into, here's what actually happened to the money, and we end up telling the story. So some of the cases in... Um, uh, in Canada, there was um, a couple of really big ones that were out west, and I think it was just uh, a couple of years ago, there was one in um, uh, out of Alberta, I think it was uh, headquartered out of Calgary, and there was um, two individuals that had, um, you know, taken this, this investment opportunity to these people, and it came back that as many as 3,000 investors, um, not quite... Uh, I think the I think the headlines told us that over a third of them were Canadian, lost um, almost three hundred million dollars in this this Ponzi scheme. So that was in the the individuals who were behind it was somebody named Gary Sorensen and Milo Brost. I didn't work on that one, but we read a lot about that one in the uh, the press. And there was um, the Earl Jones one, which was uh, in the late two thousands two thousand nine. I think it went on. Um, uh, in the late 80s through 2009, and it was over 50 million dollars that people had invested, and they thought that it would be it would earn money for them, and um, the money's just gone. It's got, just gone. So, always my when I when I when I talk to people about fraud awareness and and uh, fraud prevention, we should never as individuals we should not give up our money easily. If you know somebody's coming to us and presenting an investment opportunity for. You know, you know, I'll take your money. I'm going to invest it in real estate, and you know, give me 18 months. I'm going to be able to triple your money for you. We should just be walking away. We should be so wary. We should not ever give up our money easily, because these types of um, um, opportunities that are presented are often schemes. And uh, you know, even if there is some truth to them, we we why you know why <laughs> why should we be you know giving ten thousand dollars? And and sometimes we see the check amounts, and it's so much more money and I just want to um, um, I, you know I want to tell all of us do not give up our money easily because there, we, there's very few opportunities in this world today where we're going to be able to triple our money within a year they're just uh, um, individuals who are trying to they're trying to defraud us they, they have a different intent 
So you mentioned that you try and trace the money. Uh, I'm curious as to what that actually looks like, because quite often now, especially right now uh, in the in the current day and age, money isn't always a physical thing that we have, like the paper and the coins. It's quite often just numbers in a bank balance or numbers being shuffled via credit cards or debit cards or things like that. So how do you actually track money in a situation like this? Yeah, so this is a good question, and it's one that that um, sometimes we do get. To, well, we always get challenged by, but and sometimes the the uh, uh, the challenge is very difficult to overcome. So, when if if for example there is a case and there are allegations against one or two people um, who either as individuals or through a company, a corporate entity, the, the allegations are that this, this fraud has been committed. It's, it's an um, affinity fraud or it's a Ponzi scheme or it was an investment scam, whatever it was. And um, uh, investigators, so usually these types of cases are criminal cases which are investigated not by, not by civil groups, um, um, although, although sometimes that might happen, but it will be a law enforcement agency and they're investigating investigating to understand if there was criminal activity and there'd be criminal charges. So if that happens, we now know who the, the accused are. It would be specific individuals and specific uh, entities, and those individuals and entities would have bank accounts or financial accounts. So it doesn't always have to be a bank account. It could be um, you know accounts with securities dealers, uh, investment firms, so whatever type of financial account it is, we would, um, we would want to have access to that. So through that uh, criminal process, and the, the, the effort of obtaining, um, you know, evidentiary information and understanding what the allegations are, the police would obtain uh, search warrants and say, I want to go have access to these bank accounts, these financial accounts, and um, actually ob- obtain the documentary evidence. And, and oftentimes the accused doesn't know that this is happening until, until later on in the process. So uh, once we have, once once myself and our, our team, we would have access to those, um, whether it's uh, as a piece of paper or it's an electronic document or electronic data. But we have access to the the information inside those uh, financial accounts. So let's call it call this one a bank account. I can now see the money going. I can see money going in. I can see money being sitting in there if it's being being held and not used. And I can see so I can see all the ins and all the outs. Of this um, of this account, and now I can start to understand um, and and track and trace uh, for all the money coming in. Do I know where it came from? Do do I have the the evidence on the other side? I know you know these people are coming forward and say they paid this money. They're giving they're providing copies of checks, and I can trace I can trace the source of the money, and I want to do this exactly, Rochelle. I want to know for that hundred thousand dollars that came in. I want to know the source of that money exactly. So I've got people telling me a story, but I'm also going to go to the bank or the financial institution or the securities firm or whomever it is and ask for the underlying documentation for that uh, transfer of funds or deposit of $100,000. So I'll get the underlying source documentation and, and check it out. And then for all the money out... You know, this is where I really, the case begins. I want to know how the money was spent, how it was used. These, the alleged perpetrators of this crime, how did they use the money? Were they really buying real estate and trying to make a return on investment for these people? Or did they use it for something else? And often we find it's, it's used for something else. It's used to support a lifestyle for these individuals. So we, we can, um, you can, you can, you can all imagine from a bank account, often you can, you can understand how money was used. Sometimes we have descriptive information in there, but we really go to the underlying, um, 
uh, source documentation, the underlying evidence, and we go get it from a party, from a source who's independent, so we want to make sure that it's not false, it's not uh, a fabricated document, it hasn't been fraudulently uh, prepared or, or changed or altered, and we'll um, often get that from the banks or the diff- whatever um, um, financial institution, whatever it is, and we'll find out where the money actually went. Part of uh, what you mentioned there reminded me of the idea of uh, things like parent companies, subsidiary companies, uh, shell companies that we often will hear about on things like CSI or other white collar uh, or white collar crime shows. Um, but I, I realize I don't actually know what a lot of those terms really mean, or even if they're they're accurate terms that are used in the industry. So. Uh, are those some ways that people try and, and hide what they're doing with, with this kind of scheme? Yes, yes. So how I let, I, let me try to explain it this way to your listeners. So we actually have in Canada, we have quite significant um, legislation. We have laws and regulations that are fine. Many um, organizations in our financial uh, services sector industry across the country, across the world actually, have to follow um, regarding um, money laundering and terrorist financing because it's, money laundering is when, when criminals try to move illegal money and they, they try to hide it. So we have all these laws in place that, that our banks and our credit unions and our uh, securities dealers and, and you know a long list of, of regulated agencies have to follow. And one of them is around making sure they really understand the ownership of corporate entities because it's so easy for individuals who want to stay hidden, who want to conceal themselves, who, you know, don't, you know, don't want people to know who they really are to hide behind um, companies and sort of complex um, uh, structures of ownership. So if, um, if, if there's a company that has a bank account um, in, in Canada with a Canadian bank account, the, the bank in Canada has to understand who the owner of that company is. And if you took a look and you said, well, the owner of that company is another company. So now we, there's a parent who owns a sub. The parent company is the, is, you know, on an organization chart, a visual would be the, um, uh, the, the, the parent would be the parent and the sub is usually is called a subsidiary. So we've got a parent and sub, and we start to understand that there would be maybe some other companies beside the subsidiary. So this would be a, a sister company or an affiliated organization. And we start drawing a complex organization structure. The laws in Canada today, and again, in many parts of the world, not all around the world, but in, in many parts, are requ- requiring that bank or the securities dealer or the credit or whoever it is who's regulated for these, these laws that I'm talking about to understand who the real owners are. And when we talk about the real owners, we really want to understand the beneficial ownership. That's a term that's used, beneficial ownership. So I don't want to, if you tell me that company A is owned by company B, I still don't know who the people are, who, who are sort of the directing minds who are making the decisions, because companies don't do things, people do things. So I need to always try to get to the level, I have to, I've got to get to the level of knowing who the people are who are driving the organization the entity, whatever this complex organization structure are. So we, we, in, in the past, it would be easy to say, well, this company will open up a bank account and that company is owned by another company and this other company is actually, um, um, you know, a company that we... Um, 
uh, we registered somewhere in South America. And so who are the owners of this, this company that is registered in South America? I don't know. Maybe it's another company. Maybe it's a trust company. Maybe we've got all of these layers and we're trying to hide who the real people are. And these real people might be ones who have, um, um, you know, an intent to deceive us. They have, um, maybe they have a criminal background. They have illegal money. So they're, they're trying to hide themselves. So we, we now have laws and it's making it really hard for our financial services sector to say, well, you, you can't just have a bank account uh, with a company. You have to know who your client is. And when we say know your client, you have to really understand who the people are ultimately. You have to have a picture and detailed documentation of that whole organization structure now. We don't live in a world anymore where you're just allowed to say, well, it's ABC company and I don't need to know anymore. They, they have to work to find out who the, the, the directing minds, the authorizing minds are. And the, the term we use is who is the beneficial ownership? Who's actually benefiting um, from, from having this, this company? So there's, there's lots of ways to hide and one of the when we get when we take on a case and we start to understand who the the people are right who are the um uh the potential you know the alleged perpetrators who are the ones who are um uh, uh believed or alleged to have been involved in this or done this and we might you know are they the, ba- the bad guys who are the people who have committed the, the fraudulent activity we want to know um are they related to any companies? We want to do some research and find out. You know, have they registered companies in their name? And we and we want to we we want to find out everything we can about them to try to piece together that story. So it it's it is it's part of the investigative um, um, you know work that we must do to get uh, behind all these companies and the complex uh, corporate structural organization charts that are sometimes used to. Uh, to hide information and and really hide people, and we live in a world today where we um, we don't want people to be able to hide anymore behind these um, uh, um, these companies. At least not in Canada, not North not North America, not parts of um, uh, Europe. There are parts of the world where there's still we we don't have the level of laws that we have here today. Um, but um, uh, anyways, we're it's it, it's changing. We, we the world wants more transparency around this, rather than less. So I, I'm curious when we we hear the word shell company sometimes is that an actual technical term or is that just basically like a parent company or a, a company that's just designed to hide something? So a shell company would be used to describe a company which is. Um, um, not, for example, an operating company. So a company that owns assets, that has employees, that actually, you know, has people who use those assets, sorry, pays people to use those assets to produce something, a service or a product, actual operational activity, we would never refer to that as a shell company. That would be a real company, um, you know, a corporate organization that does things, produces things, um, you know, has, has a, uh, whatever it is that they do. We, so we would not call that a shell company. A shell company is now, um, well, it might have, um, it, sorry, it must have uh, directors, people who, who would sit on the boards of directors. Um, generally, entities, corporate entities must have a board and there must be owners. So there would be ownership of this company. There would be directors. But it's not really doing anything other than holding ownership in another company. Um, uh, it, it, it's... It's, it's not really holding operating assets. Um, it's, it's more on paper as opposed to operations. So we would refer to a shell company. We would refer to that type of scenario as a shell company. 
And often we hear things about um, people buying shell companies. Um, this is this is less acceptable in today's world than it was, for example, even five or ten years ago. You know, going down to you know certain parts of the the, the Caribbean or other parts of the world and and buying a shell company, like literally, I you know I need a company. I want to I want to I want to um, 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 create a layer of ownership of of these other companies. I need another company. I want to I need a bank account and I need a company to hold the bank account. So I'll go buy a shell company. And you could go down to parts of the world. I, I've I've never done this. I've never personally investigated this. I've I've seen the results up here in cases in Canada, but I've never been down there to do that. You say I need to buy a company, and so you say, okay, well here's a company. It was you know it was incorporated two years ago. I've got a couple of nominee directors on it, and a nominee would be somebody who provides their name to the process, but isn't really. Um, isn't really or doesn't need to be involved, but you need someone's name to be the uh, the director of the corporation uh, for the the, uh, the the corporate filing, and you buy a company, and that that would be called a shell company. So, how are some of the ways that people try and hide something that they've done financially, or hide money, or maybe try and escape having to go to jail or having to pay back the money? Um, I'm just trying to think of people who are who are more like classic white collar criminals. How do they try and evade justice? So, if you talk about an individual who worked in a company, who um, so so we see these types of cases, unfortunately, too often. Who um, we, well, I'm, I'm trying to decide which one to share with you. We can talk about the you know the clerk who works in accounting who receives the 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 payments from customers and needs to record the receipt of accounts payable, um, accounts receivable, and um, takes the the checks, the funds, or the wire transfers and diverts them to their own personal account. If uh, $100 came in today to pay this account, but the clerk takes 50 okay, and the 50 is used personally, so now I only have $50, but that customer says I paid 100 So the next 100 that comes in, they would use it to pay the, um, uh, to record payment of the first account, and then the second account would be short. So then the, this is like backwards pyramid scheme, and it's called accounts payable lapping. So there, and what they would need to do is they would need to um, make entries in the books and records of the company that are hiding the hiding the uh, what's actually happening with the payments. Now, if you had um, say a different type of scenario, like say you had somebody who worked for a company and said, well, I'm part of, um, um, my company has to spend a lot of money on these things here and I need suppliers to come forward and provide whatever types of goods and services they're going to do. If I have, um, uh, we're, we're building a whole, let's call it uh, commercial properties, and as part of the building of these properties, I need people to come in and um, you know, I, I actually build them out and do, do, the, do the, uh, the, the renovation work inside the, uh, uh, the buildings. And I'm gonna, I want to give the, um, the bidder, the, the, the groups that come forward to do these services are going to say, I want to work on the project, I want to work on the project, I want to work on the project. Well, if I'm really, um, uh, if, 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 I'm the, if I'm the one who's doing this, I'm going to say, well, um, uh, if, if I'm sorry, it wouldn't be me, it wouldn't be you. But if, if, we, if, if we now were somebody who was committing fraud, who had for whatever uh, personal need or gain, whether they were desperate or greedy or whatever it was, whatever their intent was, um, negotiates with these suppliers as maybe they want a kickback for what's going on. I'll give you the contract. I won't give it to your competitors. I'll give you the contract, but I want um, um, 
I want a piece of this. I want 10% or I want a commission payment. I want something. So we're getting a lot more um, uh, uh, transparency and, and a, lower th- a lower tolerance threshold, Rochelle, on, on kickback activity. We've got law in Canada around anti-corruption and bribery. Maybe you've heard about that. And we don't want this kind of activity going on. We don't want it going on in Canada. We don't want it going on in, in other parts of the world when our, com- our companies go to other parts of the world and do business. So we've, I've had the chance to investigate many cases where there's been allegations of somebody who's accepting a bribe or a kickback, and we have to... Um, uh, take a look at that whole process. Are they giving contracts repeatedly to one person? Is there something going on there? And is there enough evidence here that uh, that there should be an investigation into um, into the person themselves? So we're almost out of time, but um, I did want to ask you, we, we tend to focus, uh, a lot of our mainstream media tends to focus a lot on the crime, uh, on crime that we think of more as real crime. So violence, drug use, that kind of stuff. Um, but do you think we pay enough attention to white collar crime and to financial crime? Rochelle, I think it's getting better. I um but the short answer is no, I don't think we pay enough attention. And we are so, um, um, you know, sophisticated in our, in our world today we, and, and how we are structured as a society. And if you think about the, the I, I like to call it sometimes the financial infrastructure of how we, we, um, we, we organize ourselves as a society, how we transfer value between parties, whether that's personally or at a higher level, that you know the companies that are doing business, the entities around the around the world, and one of the things that I've had the chance to spend a lot of time on um, is around identity theft and some of the impacts around that, and the and and given how 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 we're we're structured and how and how easy it is for you know people with this criminal intent to perpetrate these frauds to target us to get to get our data from all the different systems and databases and then use our data to, to commit these frauds and 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 leave the weight of the crime on us i I, I am I, I am not satisfied that we are doing enough to to stop this, to prevent it, to shut it down, um, uh, to punish it once we can and do. We um, often the criminal cases that we're involved in, and, and you know, and the ones that we're not and that we see, there is the our, our criminal system is so fair <laughs> and well i i think it's fair i i realize that i'm biased because i've worked on on one side of it i've assisted one side of it but it is so um uh the bar is set so high to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that these crimes committed and the 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 level of sophistication and detail that has to go to to that we have to go to to prove that is sometimes just economically we we don't have the resources to do it so these crimes don't go punished I think to the extent that they that they should or could or um, so what, what am I trying to say that's helpful it's much easier and, and nothing is easy but it is easier to um, uh, sometimes make the case in a in a more violent crime as opposed to uh, a financial type crime where we we have the same uh, rule the same rules for our justice system and it's um, so I don't I don't think it's being um, um, enough attention punished enough but but I do think that it is getting better and people are becoming more aware and that the tolerance level for for fraudulent activity. Is, is lowering and people are, are, um, 
no longer willing to just to just let this go. We've seen big things like SNC Lavalin. We've we've we we have cr- criminal charges have been laid against executives of SNC Lavalin. We have um, uh, senators of you know in our in out of our Canada Senate who are dealing with you know serious issues and allegations regarding ex- expense claim reports. We never had that before. And, you know the tolerance level on that now is now very low. Like you can't you can't do this kind of stuff anymore. And that kind of um, that kind of story, that backdrop, I think, has also um, um, being being told and lived and experienced inside corporate um, Canada. Like it's just this is this stuff isn't allowed anymore. So I, I think it's getting better, but we've got more to do, and and we can uh, I think we can prevent more too if we put our minds to it. Thanks so much for joining me today. Really, you have a fascinating job. Well, thank you, and I, I really, uh, I really appreciate being um, invited into the show and to share. And uh, I encourage any, you know, everyone, don't give up your money easily. Don't, you know, be very wary, be very skeptical. It's your money; you've earned it. And uh, you know, help raise awareness with your friends and family, and um, you know, ask more questions if if uh, if you're interested, if you need to. And if you want to learn more about forensic accounting or Jennifer Fidian Green, you can find those links on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Up next after the break, I talk to Dr. Jahan Ragai, Emeritus Professor of Chemistry with the American University in Cairo, about how we use science to help us separate paintings done by masters from those that are forgeries. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. With me is Dr. Jahang Ragai, Emeritus Professor of Chemistry with the American University in Cairo. Because of her interest in archaeological chemistry, she was a consultant to the American Research Center in Egypt Sphinx Project and has served on the National Committee for the Study of the Sphinx. She has lectured extensively around the world to university and museum audiences on scientific detection of forgery and paintings and wrote a book on the same subject, The Scientist and the Forger, Insights into the Scientific Detection of Forgery and Paintings. Jahan, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you. Thank you. So is the concern over forgeries and the need to authenticate paintings a recent problem, or have we been trying to deal with forgeries for a really long time? It's not a recent problem, actually. It has been for a long time, but it has reached, actually, a crescendo recently in the last decade. And the reason being, of course, that the prices of art, as you know, have has skyrocketed. You have a painting for Picasso, which sells for $100 million, $50 million, a Jackson Pollock for $200 million. And so, of course... In parallel, in tandem with this, of course, uh, the number of forgeries have increased tremendously. But there is also another kind of forgery, or not kind of forgery, but another reason. Uh, As you know, uh, there are many Russian avant-garde artists, and uh, with Peretroiska, gradually, and the liberation of uh, of Russia in a way, not the liberation, but of course uh, uh, the elimination of the communist regime, 
many billionaires and uh, Russian oligarchs uh, were concerned of bringing back Russian avant-garde to their own country in order to uh, preserve their own uh, legacy. And uh, in parallel to this, of course, because, again, the prices of Russian avant-garde art or paintings have increased so much, you find a lot also of Russian avant-garde paintings flooding the market. And so definitely, recently, it has reached almost untellable proportions. But in parallel to this, of course, the scientific detection techniques that were used to detect forgery have also become much more sophisticated. And uh, the forger now today expects scientific investigation. So testing for forgery, in a way, becomes a test of the forger's uh, ability, uh, knowledge, uh, attention to detail, and know-how, and of course, to a certain extent, scientific knowledge. So yes, to your answer, yes, it has increased recently, but it has always been there. It's interesting because I guess when you sort of up the ante from the forgery detection side, it also forces the forgers to get better at what they do. Definitely, definitely. I mean, in the past, the forger wouldn't be too worried about, uh, for instance, the palette of the artist or what kind of pigment uh, the artist used. But gradually knowing, today knowing that the painting might be, the forgery might be tested, uh, they are very, um, in general, the clever forger is quite scrupulous in identifying the palette of the so-called artist and uh, uh, not using an anachronistic painting, meaning a painting that did not exist during the lifetime of the forger. So uh, you talk in your book about how detecting forged paintings in the modern day is part science and part connoisseurship. Uh, Why can't we just do the science? I mean, why do we need connoisseurship to verify a painting as an authentic work? For many reasons, of course, uh, um, and I'll give you a specific example to explain my. Generally, the connoisseur's eye can also look into the style because sometimes a forger is very meticulous. He can find an old canvas and therefore the, the date of the canvas cannot, can be old and therefore cannot really reveal the forgery. The palette we identifies, he finds a way of producing a proper craquelure, and craquelure are the cracks that form in a painting with time, and therefore he can produce the perfect forgery. But the style might be different, the brushwork might be different, and it is there that the eye of the connoisseur can identify that. And the specific example I'm going to give you, which I actually relate in my book, is uh, the famous Mona Lisa. Of course, we all know about the Louvre Mona Lisa. But then uh, recently, I mean in the last few years, there was a Mona Lisa at the Prado, which was considered as a copy. But when analyzed with infrared reflectography, which is a technique that gives you the underdrawing or the starting sketches of the artist, it was noted that the corrections which were made, the changes that were made in the underdrawing, which are generally indicative of a real artist, were exactly the same as those of the Mona Lisa, so of the Louvre Mona Lisa. And therefore, it was basically concluded that probably when Leonardo da Vinci was painting the Mona Lisa, the famous Mona Lisa, there must have been a student working parallel, using the same palette, using the same canvas, using everything the same, and even making the same correction in the initial sketches. Now, how do you differentiate between the original 
and uh, the forgery or the copy in that case, the only way is the eye of the connoisseur. And in fact, uh, many art historians uh, and connoisseurs, because sometimes they use these two terms are used interchangeably, uh, basically in that case, uh, uh, they all, of course, uh, realized uh, that uh, the work in the Prado was nowhere as fine as the true Mona Lisa. So here the connoisseur is quite crucial. So how singular or unique is an individual master artist technique? I mean, I guess it would be kind of like handwriting? In a way. In a way. It's in a way. Uh, there is an approach also which is called uh, the Morellian analysis, which in a way has been maybe um, not discarded, but uh, has uh, um, lost some of its importance. However, when it's used in tandem with scientific and with connoisseurship, it's important. Now, um, Giovanni Morelli was an Italian uh, physicist, physician, who knew very well the human body, and who was also very interested in art. And what he said was that each artist has his own idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic means ingrown technique in producing small details, like a Freudian slip you know, in the painting, and producing the eye, and producing the nose, and producing the mouth, and irrespective of the development of the artist, even if, like, Picasso, he started with the blue and the pink period, and he moved to surrealism, so totally changed, these small details remain. And therefore, the connoisseur can actually identify these as a fingerprint, as you would call it, you see? So I'm assuming then that a really good forger is also looking to forge that technique to try and uh, get the the copy past uh, a connoisseur as well as trying to replicate the scientific definitely. background story for the painting. Style, definitely, uh, totally. I mean, sometimes, sometimes we will find that. Uh, the connoisseur, without the scientist or without some art historian evidence, can also be wrong. Uh, and here I will give you an example. There are the, the, the meadow flowers by Van Gogh. This was a painting which was assumed to be a copy. It was very large, much larger than what Van Gogh used to paint. It had much more flowers. The position of the signature was not where Van Gogh. And so the connoisseurs generally you know, said, well, this doesn't seem to be a Van Gogh. But then, when by the technique of infrared reflectography, by a more sophisticated infrared reflectography is a technique that can see the underdrawings, all right? Um, the sophisticated approach with infrared reflectography revealed in that particular picture uh, that there were two wrestlers fighting. Okay. Now, this, you know, was not given too much importance, except when they looked at some of the letters that uh, Van Gogh wrote to his brother Theo, and they realized, basically, that in one of the letters, Van Gogh tells his brother Theo, today I've painted a large painting of two wrestlers fighting together which was actually the underdrawing on, over which Van Gogh painted another painting. So that was an authentication as opposed to a forgery in this case, but it was really the science in conjunction with the art history and not really the connoisseurship uh, uh, which played a crucial role in such a case. 
So if I'm a forger and I want to look at uh, forging a painting, what kind of strategies would I take? What, what are sort of my big options as to how to pass off a painting as an original? The general basically is a the canvas. All right? The canvas needs to be timely. If it's uh, supposedly a Leonardo da Vinci, it should be around uh, the time of the uh, Renaissance, around 1500 AD. All right? That's one thing. So the, the canvas needs to be old. You can find an old canvas and paint over it. So this is number one. Number two, you must make sure that uh, in, you know, normally you have uh, the canvas and then you have an underlayer that is normally painted, uh, white or sometimes with generally lead carbonate as a white pigment or later on zinc oxide, he must make sure that the underlayer is painted with a pigment that is timely with the artist. He shouldn't use, let's say, zinc oxide or titanium dioxide, which appeared much later, in imitating a painting, let's say, belonging to a coral. Right? And then after that, is he moves on to the painting, the pigments. He may must make sure that uh, the palette of the artist, or at least the palette of the time, uh, is, uh, what is it, what are the particular pigments that were used during that particular time, or by that particular artist, number two. Having done that, uh, he must now produce a painting that he tries as much as possible to emulate the style of the artist, all right? So tries to see how he produces some of his uh, movements, some of the faces, and so on and so forth, and uh, the brushwork, because, for instance, uh, Van Gogh used to do very thick underlying brushwork, so he should be able to know the technique of the artist. And then here also, he must make sure that uh, there should be a convincing craquelure. Now, what is a craquelure? Uh, generally, when a painting is made and is dried, the pigments uh, dry and they shrink. And when they shrink, they produce on the surface of the painting cracks that are generally deep. And uh, he needs to have a convincing craquelure. And therefore, he could either draw it, but this could be detected by a microscope or even sometimes by the naked eye. Or he could use a very thin pin, and that is a very strenuous exercise. Or he can resort to a more sophisticated technique, uh, like the one used by Van Meegren, the famous forger Van Meegren, who experimented for four years until he finally managed to get a convincing craquelure that looked exactly like an old craquelure. Once this is actually done, he uses, of course, uh, a binding of the pigments uh, that is not, again, uh, a modern one. And I can give you here some examples. Would you like me to give you some examples? Yes, that would be lovely. Okay. One example is the case of Van Meegren. Now, Van Meegren, it is said that Van Meegren was a Dutch painter, that he was in his own right a good painter, but was looked in a critical eye or was looked down upon by the Dutch art establishment. And therefore, he decided to take revenge. And what he did was, uh, he looked at uh, Bredias, the famous expert in Vermeer of the time. And Bredias had uh, predicted uh, that actually he um, 
uh, that he would, uh, let's say, instill some undiscovered vermeers, that they should have a religious connotation. And he also said uh, that uh, Vermeer had been influenced by Italian artists. So what Van Meegeren did in his preparing his forgery, he prepared a forgery of Vermeer which uh, suited perfectly the prediction of Bredius. My meaning, he chose, uh, he chose a religious uh, subject. He went to Italy and looked at Caravaggio's paintings and uh, imitated the arrangements to show that Vermeer had been, and he made uh, a religious theme with very large paintings which were predicted by Bredier. But then he had also to produce a convincing craffure. So he experimented, and he found actually that uh, the oil of lilac, which was uh, a um, an oil, which was the ideal oil to dissolve the pigment, uh, well, it could be used in conjunction with turpentine and other things. And, uh, but he had a problem there because, uh, of course, the oil of lilac has a smell and he was working in complete secrecy, even from his wife and her friends. So he, whenever uh, they would come to the studio, he was afraid uh, that the studio would reek of the smell of oil of lilac. And therefore, to avoid that, he took a liking uh, to the flowers, and he had always some lilac flowers in his uh, uh, studio. And uh, after experimenting, adding the pigment to the oil of lilac and uh, mixing it uh, with the resin which was dissolved in turpentine and putting it in the oven under 100 degrees, after four years of strenuous ex uh, experimenting, he got a perfect craquure which could be indiscernible from that of the original. So, of course, when Bredias came and looked at the painting, which came not directly but through an intermediate, all his predictions were actually uh, met. The character is perfect. He authenticated it and he said it is by, uh, every inch of the knee. See? So here, in that case, the forger, apart from what I told you in terms of the pigments, the palette, etc., would look at something that would be in his forgery would be convincing to the art critics of the time. It's amazing to me the time and effort and expertise that forgers can put into their work. I mean, their their copies of originals are fakes, but at the end of the day, they're also kind of works of art within themselves a little bit. This is very, very true. In fact, you know, uh, recently the greatest uh, uh, forgery scandal was in Cologne, Germany, uh, by by the painter Wolfgang Beltrachi. Have you heard about it? I have uh, not. No. no. Well, Beltrachi was one of the cleverest and the, one of the greatest artists. Actually, as a forger, he um, he forged thousands of <laughs> paintings, modern painters. Uh, uh, and uh, and so on, and he actually uh, even had a perfect provenance because uh, he invented uh, a, a Jaeger collection uh, whereby uh, he um, uh, assumed that there was this uh, Jaeger who was a businessman, very well good businessman, and he said that this Jaeger had bought the whole collection of a certain Alfred Fleichmann in 1933 who was fleeing the Nazis. And uh, he said that, he, that, and what made his story convincing was uh, that his accomplices, his his wife and her sister, 
were the granddaughters of this uh, Jäger. So the Jäger collection was said to have been have inherited uh, uh, by them. Now, I have a bit digressed here, but anyway, so he actually had a convincing provenance. But to address your question, Beltrachi uh, uh, was so clever that what he would do, he went uh, to the galleries where the artists he was intending to forge exhibited. He went uh, to the home where the artist lived. He tried as much as possible, this is what he claims after when he was caught and uh, interviewed, he, won, he actually tried to penetrate the soul of the artist, uh, and then he said, I wanted not only that, but in his oeuvre I'm trying to uh, actually um, fill in the gap in his work. And he created the most magnificent campendongs, for instance, of Picasso's or what have you. One campendong actually was bought by the actor Steve Martin. And, uh, and he was caught. He was caught uh, not because he was negligent, but uh, there was just uh, poor luck, because he had uh, um, prepared his uh, ground layer, with uh, some uh, uh, zinc oxide, uh, which uh, was uh, basically uh, used by Campendong, but he didn't realize that it was slightly adulterated by titanium dioxide. And when this was analyzed in a very sophisticated manner by a uh, certain Nicola Eastoff in London, who has a very good lab, he could uh, find, he discovered this titanium dioxide uh, which actually uncovered all this scam. But what we could say is that uh, Beltrachi and others, uh, in their own way, are creative. It is an act of creativity to add, to produce a forgery in the style, but it's not a copy, it's a new creation, and in the style uh, of uh, the artist uh, which is being forged. I wanted to talk a little bit about how some of the scientific techniques that we think about uh, as being used to detect forgeries can also help us understand better the process or the strategies or the techniques the artists use. Because sometimes while we're trying to figure out whether they're authentic or not, we can also, uh, it can also be revealed um, some of the techniques that they used. For example, oh, some of the course. underdrawings, which I find really fascinating as well. Yes, of course, definitely. I mean, uh, you, you can, you can definitely discover, for instance, uh, I will tell you, uh, if uh, some of the, the artists uh, do uh, paint uh, wet on wet, all right? They, they paint one layer, mm-hmm. and then before waiting that that layer has dried, uh, they paint another layer on top, and then another, and they produce a mixture of colors and what have you, fine? Other artists prefer drying and then producing uh, wet on dry. And uh, the scientific technique, uh, which is quite simple because it's the optical microscope uh, you use and you have a cross-section, you analyze, you can, using an optical microscope or maybe even uh, an ultraviolet uh, uh, spectroscope, which gives you maybe a better image, you can see if there is a separation between the layers of this cross-section that is clear-cut, therefore it was wet uh, on dry. If there is a very diffuse layer between the two, it's wet on wet. So this, at least 
that's the alpha, <laughs> uh, of uh, looking into one of the techniques uh, that is used by one particular artist as opposed to another artist. Another uh, idea also is, for instance, um, there is this famous Spanish painter, uh, Sorolla, who um, is very much like the Impressionistic uh, painters, and he's very well known in Spain. An analysis was made of one of his paintings, and um, which was thought to be his, it was very sure, and then 50 other paintings were thoroughly analyzed by a technique known as X-ray fluorescence to get, that gives you the amount, the elements, the amount of elements which were used in a particular painting. And uh, it was found out that generally he used uh, a certain amount of zinc in all the paintings. If uh, the, that particular painting contains the same palette and everything but a much larger amount of zinc in the mixture, Therefore, it is uh, not a Soroya. So by determining the relative amounts of uh, paintings, of, of the relative amounts of elements, you can also get to know something about the artist. Apart from that, apart from the technique, you can also use some of the scientific techniques uh, to determine the ore from which the pigment was extracted. The manufacturing uh, uh, well, this is a bit more difficult, but uh, you can actually, from the lead, determine what, uh, and this was done in one of the authentications that I'm describing in the book of a painting by Vermeer Saint Praxedis, where you can get to know exactly from where the lead, as lead carbonate, was extracted, and therefore, if in two paintings it's exactly the same or the same, it must be if you're comparing one uh, painting that is of an unknown with one that is supposed to be by the artist uh, and comparing and you get exactly the same place of extraction, the same kind of uh, lead that is used, uh, therefore there is an, this is an authentication process. Furthermore, of course, by looking closely, you can see by looking at with an optical microscope, uh, uh, magnification even of 60 times only, you can get to know the type of brush stroke and the style. And uh, if we can go even more sophisticated, uh, you can use some digital techniques to look into the formation of the eyes and so on, as this Pascal Cot in France recently did. You can get to know exactly the approach in making an eye by using the, an imaging technique that is extremely sophisticated Jahan, I would love to talk to you about this for hours because I'm a, a forgery, painting forgery story junkie. But at some point, uh, we're going to run out of time. I know, I know. <laughs> so thank you so yeah, much yeah, for being here. Actually, your questions were intelligent. <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> so I'm pleased about that. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that was helpful. Yes, very helpful. And it's a really fascinating topic. And I, I really enjoyed the book. So thank you thank so much. You. And if you want to know more about Jahan Ragai or her book, The Scientist and the Forger, Insights into the Scientific Detection of Forgery and Paintings, we have links available for you to click on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. 
we get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell.